0: Hospitality and kindness to travelers are an important part of many world religions. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, we're exploring two Eastern spiritual traditions. First, you can't really grasp the complexities of India without a basic understanding of Hinduism. So I've invited Serena Singh, who writes guidebooks on India, to walk us through Hinduism 101. Then, more and more Westerners are finding spiritual solace in the words of an Islamic philosopher and mystic whose 800th birthday we're celebrating this year. Rumi is best known as the inspiration of Turkey's whirling dervishes. My Turkish friend, Malika Seval, who was raised on Rumi's teachings, will explain how he inspires her spiritually. We'll also open the phones for your stories about the kindness you've encountered as a traveler. We're sharing and exploring the spiritual wisdom of Hindustan and Islam on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Part of traveling is learning about different faiths and on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring aspects of Hinduism and Islam that have a universal appeal, including kindness to travelers. But first, let's get started with your calls. Share your stories of the kindness you've encountered in your travels. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. That's 877-333-7425. Or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're sharing tales of heroic kindness to travelers. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at com. Kristen's on the line in Dublin, Ohio. Hi, Kristen. Hi. Yeah, thank you. Do you have a story for us?
1: I certainly do. My son's in is stationed um, in Germany, and he's in the Army. Two years ago, I went to to visit him in the summer, and I was staying in his apartment, and he was out doing maneuvers and was gone for about three days. So I was on my own, and I didn't have the address um, of the apartment that I was staying in or the street or or anything, but just kind of knew it from where I should get off on the bus or the train. And I got off the bus um, after my day's excursions a stop too early, And actually, I thought that I had gotten off a stop later than I should have. So I got totally disoriented, um, ended up walking through a suburban neighborhood. I found some elderly German women who didn't speak any English who were trying to be helpful, but I only know a couple things in German, so I wasn't good at being able to communicate either. I think they finally directed me over to the direction of a school, and when I went over there... um, I found a a young lady who was, I think they were doing soccer. And I asked this lady if she spoke English and asked her the directions to the train station because I knew I could orient myself back if I could get to the train station in Wolfersheim. And she said, well, actually, if you'll just wait a couple minutes, I'll I'll just drive you there. So she drove me up to where my son's apartment was. And she was an exchange student going to be coming to the U.S. um, that fall so it was was wonderful because I was really panicking because i didn't you know I really didn't know where I was, and it was getting dark
0: right well luckily she uh, you bumped into the right person, it sounds like
1: that's right, and I went back and and my son wasn't there he he was in, he's in Iraq, um, and I had a little card with the address of the of, the, of his apartment, and I kept that with me all the time.
0: <laughs> That's a smart idea. In fact, when I take a group to a new city in Europe, I always get the card of the hotel and I give it to everybody, even if it seems, like, unnecessary, because it's easy to get turned around, and it's nice to be able to just pull out that card and show anybody, and then they'll direct you in, uh, in the right way to get back home.
1: Yes, exactly. All right. Exactly.
0: Kristen, thanks for your call. A lot of times when I uh, am exploring a town, I like to take a bus just out into the suburbs and get off anywhere and wander around, and you, you find people like Kristen did that never see a tourist, and you'd be surprised at how much fun you can stumble into and don't even have any any sort of direction from a guidebook or a tour guide. You're just immersed in the foreign country. Scott in Chicago has given us a call. Hi, Scott.
2: Hi, Rick. Good to speak to you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to share with you and the listeners a wonderful thing that happened to my brother and I when we were uh, in the Netherlands. We were up in uh, the province of Friesland. The family that we were visiting took us out on this boat to this really small town called Sloten. And uh, it had this old windmill there, and I think it was like 1683 that it was built. So of course, you know, we were out there taking pictures, and uh, it just happens that the, the caretaker was walking by and we speak no Dutch, so after, you know, after our um, host family was talking to them, he opened it up for us to take like a little private tour. They let us in and gave us a little tour, and um, there was this little walkway that was by the, um, the sails. Uh, we got to go out there and take pictures by the sails. It was great, almost like a once-in-a-lifetime thing because they don't usually open that part up for, for anybody
0: they were treating you like celebrities, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, yeah, it really did. It really felt like we were celebrities.
0: You know, Scott, there's a common denominator here. Everybody who's been sharing these stories has been going to places where there's not a lot of tourism. Even if it's in a touristy town, they are going. They took a wrong turn or something like this, and they find themselves no longer part of the economy but accidentally part of the party. And it's, it shouldn't be surprising that people who stumble onto you go, hey, here's a guy from a foreign country. He's lost. Let's, let's show him a good time. Let's treat him well.
2: Yeah, you know, the whole trip was was like that. Later in the day, we were in this very small church and we were uh, looking at this this really old Bible, and it was under this glass case. And the priest came by and just took the glass off of it so we could get like a better look at it. And he was flipping the pages and he says, "Oh yeah, look, look!" And you know, it's just it was like hundreds of years old, and it was just mm. like it was amazing. Just that whole trip. Um, back in town, it was like everybody seemed to like know we were there. You know? Yeah.
0: It's That's fun to be in a situation where the word spreads. There's somebody from America in the town. And yeah. I've yeah. been in situations where they've literally never seen a live American. We've seen us in the news or on TV, but you stumble into this little town, and I'm thinking of like in the east of Turkey or somewhere high in the mountains of Nepal, it, the word spreads, and pretty soon everybody's there and they want to ask questions, and I think it's real important to bring a Ziploc baggie of show-and-tell items, you know, postcards from your hometown and pictures of your family or anything you can share to bring to them.
2: Oh, that is a great yeah, yeah. it was definitely, we kept joking that they took an ad out in the paper and mm-hmm. <laughs> told everybody we were coming.
0: If you go to a town uh, in the developing world where there's absolutely no tourism, you are big news, and they yeah. still remember you.
2: I get lots of German tourists in this town, right. but... Um, yeah, it was like it was it was remarkable and just so special and, and the neighbors and family would you know they wouldn't let us buy drinks and mm-hmm. they you know, having traditional like Dutch the dinners, you know, that they usually go, Oh, this you know, we usually cook this just for like the holidays, but mm-hmm. you know, since we were there they just wanted to share their culture and it was just fantastic.
0: Yeah, and you come out of that with a, a real strong feeling that people like people. There can be differences with politics and economics and religion, but when I get right down to it, People enjoy people.
2: Yeah, it was definitely hard to leave. Uh,
0: All right, Scott in Chicago, thanks for sharing that.
2: You're welcome. Thanks, for Happy travels. Happy travels.
0: And Brenda's on the line in Toronto, Ontario. Hi, Brenda.
1: Hi, how
3: are you?
0: Great, thanks for your call.
3: I wanted to tell you uh, about some travels in Portugal, Last September, uh, before I left, I decided with a friend that we would take an evening university course, which I think is a great idea before you're going to travel to a new country, just to learn a little bit of Portuguese. Yeah. When we got to Portugal, uh, we were really happy that we had. And before Portugal and after my university classes, I would go to local Portuguese cafes in Toronto and sit and listen to people speak. And uh, through that, I I met a few older gentlemen who talked about leaving their families, what the Portuguese call so-dad, and this longing you have for the homeland. I talked to them about my route. I was driving from Lisbon to the north. I would say, I'm going to Coimbra and Aveiro in these little towns. And he'd say, oh, my mother lives in between those towns. And I said, well, would you like me to deliver flowers to her by surprise? And I think there was sort of a global idea that there's no way we could possibly manage this in, in rural Portugal. So, of course, I jumped on the idea. I really wanted to do it. And it turned out before I left, I had three grandmothers, three abels in between our, our main cities to visit. And every time we tried to do this, it actually worked out. We would get into a little town, find a florist, ask for directions in Portuguese, buy the flowers. And it was really actually quite difficult to find these houses that would say Logar Pombal, near Vila Verde, near Jerez. And uh, we ended up recruiting people with the same family names who run a butcher shop. The Pires family will know where Gracinda Oliveira Pires lives. And uh, it would take a bit, the better part of a day to find some of these houses on wild back roads in Portugal. But we called it the Projeta a avo. And uh, it made everyone happy. It made the people at the local cafe who gave us directions happy. They would drive in front. They would drive ahead of us wow. and get us to the house. And uh, we would knock on granny's doors in the middle of the afternoon and say to them, Your netto, uh, he's a friend of ours. Uh, we're from Canada. And Il El he He sends you hugs. And we would give them flowers.
0: You are brilliant, Brenda. I love that. What did you call it? You had a name for this? What does that
3: mean? It means um, the project of flowers to grandmothers. And I think you can do it in any country. And you meet, we met the fire department, we met the butcher, we met the florists, we met the cafe owners, and everyone talked about this. Everyone locally was excited about it. And uh, we met so many people, people were so kind, and afterwards people were so happy to hear about this. And uh, I think I'd, I'd do it again in any country I went to because everywhere locally in North America, there's a local ethnic community that I think you can tap into and, uh, and meet before you go, whether it's learning a language or experiencing some of the culture or the food.
0: And I think a couple of key things here, Brenda. You, first of all, you went away from the tourists, so you're dealing with people who don't see you as a walking pile of dollars and you you showed respect by learning a little bit of the language, even if it's just an evening course at your local uh, community college or whatever, Mm -hmm. and uh, you you got uh, in touch with the culture through the cafes in your town, and then you went over there, and you you so creatively met people. I just love it. It's just like a Johnny Appleseed of goodwill.
3: And it Yeah, it did make everyone involved happy, and you could feel that tangibly when we got back in the car. It carried through, gave us energy for that long drive and the rest of the day. And I think uh, years ago... When I started watching your show, it really inspired me the way that you connected with people, whether they owned a local inn uh, or whether they were part of the near, a nearby restaurant. Yeah. People you discovered, uh, as you said, with serendipity.
0: Well, those are the best things, and good travelers make serendipity happen.
3: Part of it's being flexible.
0: Absolutely. You know, um, I got to mention, we've got a, a, a wonderful corner on our website is uh, where people have shared their creative ways to meet the locals, and, and yours would be one of the prize winners. But if people want to go to uh, the ricksteves.com website in the graffiti wall, we've got a section called Creative Ways to Meet Locals. And there's a lot of ways. And I love your idea. What's the name again about uh, the flowers for grandmothers?
3: Projeta As Floresha Avo.
0: And in English, that is?
3: The flowers to grandmother's project.
0: It's a beautiful thing. Brenda from Toronto, thanks a
3: lot. Thanks a lot, Rick. Okay, happy travel. Bye
4: bye. <laughs>
0: You can add your travel tales about the kindness of strangers to the radio message board on our website. It's at ricksteves.com. Later this hour, we'll examine how a 13th-century Muslim mystic serves as a calming influence in a troubled world today. But up next... It's an introduction to Hinduism in India as we explore the spiritual side of travel. Thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I want to go to India right now, and specifically, I want to go to India with an understanding of Hinduism. In my travel experience, if you understand the religion that permeates a society, it makes your sightseeing come to life, and it helps you connect better with the people. I have with me Serena Singh, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to India. Serena, thank you for joining us. Pleasure, Rick. India is a fascinating subcontinent. Many people think of it as a country, but I think of it as a subcontinent as big and as varied ethnically as Europe, and even more varied, arguably, from a religious point of view. Tell me just in a nutshell, what is the uh, religious makeup of the Indian subcontinent?
5: Well, India, actually, it's it's a melting pot of religions. Um, The main religion, 82% of the population are Hindus, followed by... Islam is the second biggest religion and in fact India has the second biggest population of Muslims after Indonesia but definitely Hinduism is the predominant religion in India.
0: Now Hinduism dominates India what do you say
5: 80%? Around 80% yes. Yeah
0: and you know as India gets affluent and modern as in Europe and the United States does religion become less pervasive or is religion still in the forefront for people as India charges into the modern uh, affluent world?
5: You know, one of the things that I find unique about about India is that even though it is modernized, it's you know it's embracing um, the modern world, it still will not let go of its religious roots. And spirituality intertwines almost every facet of life. I was actually in uh, an, on an office recently of, of quite a high-powered executive, and before he spoke to me, he just he looked at me, and he just nodded, and then he went to a corner, lit a little um, candle and asked for blessings from a god. He had an image of Ganesh, which is one of the Hindu gods on a ledge, and he did that before he commenced business. So spirituality in India is not a tokenistic Sunday thing. It's something that is inherent in, in, in every breath that you take, I think.
0: And in our culture, a lot of times people think it's more polite to keep your religion a little private. Uh, but in India, is there that sort of ethic, or do people uh, are they open about their religion?
5: Oh, no. Religion is something to be shared and, and, you know, celebrated. So when you go to India, you'll hear it probably before you see it. You'll hear temple bells or you'll hear bhajans, which are devotional songs coming from a temple, or you'll hear the call of the azan from a mosque. So it's very much a, a big part of life, and people are very open to talking about it. So if you want to strike up a conversation about religion, don't be shy to do so. When I I did a business degree here in Melbourne, and my passion has always been travel, I specialised in hotel management because I thought that way I can live in another country, work in another country, and travel in another country. And as fate would have it, I got a corporate traineeship with the Sheraton in New Delhi in India. So I went there, I was 22 at the time, and I remember my parents just thinking, you know, why do you want to go to India? It's going to be so difficult. And of course, they were trying to talk me out of it, but I went and didn't know anybody there, unfortunately no relatives to greet me at the airport they've all migrated to, to America and Canada and Australia and England. So I woke up one morning and thought well what do I do today I think I'll go to the museum. So I went to the main museum in Delhi and I, as there was there was a group of American tourists actually about a group of 20 so I thought I'd just sort of tag along at the end and listen to what the guide was saying. And the guide was an old Indian man with this long, silvery beard and twirly moustache, and he was talking about some of, some of the artefacts in the museum. And then he suddenly turned around, he pointed at me and said, ''I'm very sorry, but I'm getting very strong Jupiter vibrations from you.'' Of course, I was terribly embarrassed because everyone looked at me and I thought, ''What have I done wrong?'' And he, he came over to me again and said, ''I'm really sorry, madam, but I'm just getting these strong Jupiter vibrations from you.'' And I thought it was a bit of a joke because I was very much a sceptic to these things before I went to India. And he proceeded to tell me what would happen in the forthcoming year. And I took it with a grain of salt. And they were very specific things. And as the year went on, everything eventuated. And he kept on telling me, You're on the wrong path. You're not meant to be in the hotel trade. You're meant to be writing. You're meant to be. He just kept on drumming it into me. And I thought, He's crazy. I can't write. And then as fate would have it, I'd, I met a photographer and he wanted me to, to go to a mosque with him. Um, just to, to, He wanted to be a photographer, so he was taking photographs and then he asked me to write a caption. And my first reaction was, but I can't write. And he said, just just write something. So I scrawled a paragraph and he gave it to a magazine and they wanted a 3,000 word piece. So that's how my writing career sort of began and it, and it really took off in India. I did a lot of freelance writing on all sorts of topics and then I um, thought I'd better do a postgrad in journalism, so I applied back in, in Australia. And I went to look for this old man in the museum to tell him that, hey, everything he said came true. And he's an artist, so I went into his studio, and he didn't seem surprised when I told him. And he said, what are your plans now? And I said, I plan to go back to Australia. And he said, I'm very sorry, but your time in India is not up. And, you know, I was—I'd had my airline ticket booked. I was very set in my mind. And then the next day, out of the blue, I got this offer to work as a foreign correspondent for United Press International, the American news agency, and I thought, I can't, you know, it's an opportunity too good to to give up. So sure enough, I was in India for another three years. And it just, a lot of things happened on my trip regarding these spiritual experiences that have sort of changed the whole way I look at a lot of things in life. So in that way, India, it's not only my story, it does have an effect on a lot of people, and I think particularly today, in the West, where we're so spiritually starved and, and have quite mercenary societies, you know, a lot of people are flocking to India in search of that spiritual sustenance. And, you know, it's a whole, it's actually a whole new market that's come up, people that's searching right. for that. And India does provide that.
0: You're still giving off strong Jupiter vibrations?
5: Are you getting them, Rick?
0: I think I am, yeah. <laughs> oh, good.
5: Do you tell me if they go down a bit and I'll just get closer to the mic.
0: All right. I'm talking with Serena Singh and she's the author of The Lonely Planet Guide to India, when I was dreaming about going to India, for two two years in a row, I actually had tickets to India, and then I found an excuse not to go because I was afraid of the intensity and the poverty. And when I finally got there, there was the poverty and there was the intensity, but the joy that I found overrode all the poverty and all the squalor and all the intensity. And I, I had some strange new understanding of a billion people who had a lot of suffering, but also they were able to measure joy almost in terms of the communal mass of the joy instead of how much each individual person was enjoying life. There's there's just something that changes all of your self-perceptions about India and you come away feeling like it's just a, a joyful place. Is that something to do with Hinduism?
5: Absolutely. I mean, your experience is exactly what I've had too. And again, traveling to India, it always just it makes you look at your life very differently because you might see someone who's barely got any clothes and is begging for food on the streets or in a shanty town but there's joy and it might sound wrong of me to say that but there is an appreciation of what they have and again it all comes back to religion for example the basic tenet of hinduism is karma and rebirth so people who are not who are suffering in this life think well i must have i'm paying off a debt from a last life and it means in my next life things will be better so this acceptance of the basic principles of karma rebirth reincarnation it, it it all it very much goes to the core of of every level of society in india and that's again how um how religion suffuses everything and everyone thinks that they're born into a position because they deserve to be born into that position and they work harder to get out of it for the next life
0: so if you understand in this karma and if you accept this karma then the caste system is something decent people can embrace
5: it, the caste system is highly Controversial, and there's a lot of religions that have formed uh, in reaction against the caste system, such as Jainism, which is another religion in India, Buddhism, and Sikhism. They all sort of broke away because of the caste system. But in Hinduism, the caste system is still very much there, particularly in the rural heartlands. And at the top of the caste, you've got the Brahmins, who are traditionally the priests and the teachers and below that you've got the Kshatriyas which were the warrior class below that the Vaishas which are the merchants and then the Shudras which are the labourers and then below those four major castes you've got the Dalits which were formerly called the untouchables of India and these are the people who will clean the bathrooms and do the most menial tasks. So I mean Christianity a lot of Hindus converted to Christianity to escape the confines of the caste system, and similarly, um, Buddhism. They converted to Buddhism. But having said that, still the bulk of the population is Hindu, so there's got to be something, you know, working there in the religion that's keeping people uh, attached to it.
0: Now, it's so humbling to me to have these preconceptions, and I grew up thinking, basically, how can 800 million Hindus uh, starve their children and feed their cows, you know, and I just, that was my simplistic American viewpoint on that. And you get to India, and you do see these cows that are just... uh, fat, happy cows lounging around, and you see a lot of uh, people that don't have enough food. And then you realize that, hey, in a country with no trees, cows provide vital fuel through their dried cow pies, and they incorporate that care of the cows into the sort of religious ethic so that the whole economic system can carry on. Uh, Am I describing that properly, or what's your take on that business of why the cows are so well cared for?
5: Yes, what you're saying sounds uh, on the lines of why the cows are revered. And the cows also represent um, fertility and nurturing. They're sort of an embodiment of the mother. And, of course, they give milk, so, you know, they can feed people. And, again, religion, it shows that religion suffuses into everything. And because the cow is a very sacred animal, people will leave food outside their, their doors to give to the cows. Even people who are living below the poverty line will offer something to a cow before they eat. So, again, it's everything's driven by spirituality to an extent, and the cow holds a very high place in India.
0: Strangely, during monsoon, when it looks like the whole country is devastated, people seem to be celebrating. They're so thankful for the water.
5: Exactly. And, you know, this is the one one thing that I love about India, and every time I go it keeps on making me reassess my life in Australia because in the West we get caught up with so many things. You see people with this authentic, genuine inner joy of with things that we take for granted so often. For example, the monsoonal rain. You know, there's joy because the crops are going to be good. It just makes people happy to see rain. Even a tap that works will make people happy. Electricity, when it doesn't fail... And again, you know, the the, the small joys in India are something that I think is part of the India... It's a travel experience that can make you reflect on your own values in life and sort of make you reassess what you get hyped and stressed up about when you're back home. So on that level, India seeps into you in a lot of ways that you probably don't realise, you know, until a few months later.
0: Isn't that the truth? For 25 years, I've been leading uh, Americans around Europe and I can do that because I can predict what they're going to like and what's going to turn them on but to me going to India is such a personal thing and it's such a magical thing and I just feel it's almost a sacrilege to to take people in a group as they follow me and take pictures where I say to take pictures you need to immerse yourself in India and remember that it challenges all the truths that you were raised thinking were self-evident and God-given it it humbles you When I'm in India, I don't need a list of uh, museums and palaces to visit. I just walk every day. I can be in a town for four days. One day I'll walk this direction. The next day I'll walk that direction and so on. And it's just a visual carnival. It's a wonderland. And so much of it boils down to religion alive in the streets with the people. It permeates the society and that carbonates your travel experience. And if you understand what you're looking at, it makes it even better.
5: Exactly. And what you've just said, just walking, I... I heartily encourage that because it might sound really boring, but in India when you walk, that something is going to surprise you or it's going to take you down an avenue you never intended to go down. So uh, again, I always say factor in, t- don't make a tight itinerary where you're going from point A to point B. Give a little space in there so if something comes up, you can explore and investigate it. And again, as you said, you know, having a bit of knowledge always helps because it just um, empowers you to understand why there might be a bell in front of a temple or why you, know, you cover your head when you go to a mosque. So both hand in hand are beautiful ways of exploring India.
0: You don't need to know it all because you can't know it all. How many different gods are there in the Hindu pantheon? Of
5: course you can know it. I mean, what's wrong (laughs) with you, Rick? There's only 330 million. (laughs) 330 million
0: gods. I missed a few. And growing. And growing.
5: Like the population. And that's another great thing. You can choose the god of your liking. And, I mean, out of 330 million, you know, you'd be pretty fussy if you couldn't find one. But within that, you've got the the major, the most loved gods. Uh, For example, Shiva, who's the creator and Ganesh, I'm sure you know Ganesh, the elephant-headed Hindu right. god of good fortune. And everyone loves Ganesh. Travelers fall in love with Ganesh. And you've got Durga, the mother, then Kali, the destroyer of evil. So there are some predominant gods that people worship. And there's also a lot of incarnations, which accounts for the, for the huge number of deities in wow. India.
0: Now, when you go into the markets, you see these wonderlands of uh, cosmetic dots, the colorful powder that uh, women will put on their foreheads. What, what do those mean? What's the symbolism of that?
5: That's called the Bindi, and that's, um, I mean, some say it's to symbolize the third eye. The third eye represents wisdom and uh, a knowing beyond your eyes and beyond your sight. So it's almost the sixth sense, so to speak. Um, Again, there's different variations. Some say it's for decorative purposes. So there's a few reasons as to why women wear it.
0: Some women just wear it like women in our culture paint their lips.
5: That's right. And it's become quite trendy. I mean, Madonna has got her little bindi going. So, That's true. So, you know, it's all becoming a, bit of, a lot of things in India have become big fashion statements in the West, and it quite amuses me.
0: Now, ever since the Beatles, people from Western culture have been going to India for spiritual enlightenment. Uh, have you encountered that? And do people actually um, come home happy they went to India and changed spiritually?
5: I mean, I think it's such an intangible thing and it depends what you're looking for. There are a lot of people now who go to India seeking some sort of spiritual enlightenment, um, which explains the rise in meditation courses, for example, yoga courses. A lot of travelers are doing that. A lot of people are very disillusioned with life in the West or they've had problems. I do meet a lot of people who are on the verge of divorce or separated and they've they've just made a snap decision to come to India to sort out things in their head. And, you know, they go through, the one thing India will do to you, it'll whip around your emotions. So I think if you're prepared to, you know, get frustrated, to cry, to lose it sometimes, and if you you let yourself do that, you're on the way to hopefully getting some enlightenment. But again, you can't go there and think, oh, I'm going to have this great spiritual experience because it's what you make of it. And also maybe at that time in your life, nothing is going to present itself to you. So it's again, it's that big un- unanswered question, but definitely um, there is things about India, whether it's seeing how people with very little live and have joy in what they've got, that can be a spiritually enlightening experience. So it's how you look at it and, and not, you know, dis- casting away the small things because you're not going to get this big revelation if you don't realize that spirituality lies in the smallest things essentially.
0: The people you meet in India, if they're well-educated, if they're educated at all, I imagine they'll speak English. Are they comfortable talking about spiritual matters with tourists? Is that something that's uh, reasonable for a tourist to strike up a conversation over?
5: I think it is. I mean, the one great thing about Indians, they generally want to ask you a thousand and one questions. And the most common ones are, A, where are you from? And what is your age? And are you married? What is your religion? And what is your income? That can come up quite a bit too. And these are just normal questions. They're not intended with any... Uh, you know, to antagonize in any way. If you start to talk about religion, definitely people tend to open up and they're very keen that you're so excited about their religion, for example. So again, it's a great way to learn about religion and um, something that you shouldn't feel awkward, you know, delving into with a stranger.
0: I've been speaking with Serena Singh and Serena helps write the Lonely Planet Guidebook to India. Serena, we've been talking about Hinduism 101. Part of Hinduism, of course, is Marriages And they happen to be arranged. How can a modern person accept an arranged marriage?
5: Well, arranged marriage is something that's been going on for for thousands of years. And incredibly in today's world, even the most modern young thing will completely trust their parents to to hook them up with their life partner. And it, it again goes back to faith because the first thing that has to pass the test is the horoscope. And your horoscope is based on the exact time you were born and where the planets and the stars were aligned at that time. And if your horoscope matches with a proposed partner, then the priest will say, yes, it matches, you can get married. So one of the most important decisions in anyone's life is, again, rooted in, in spirituality. And the faith that people have in that is incomparable. And also, arranged marriages tend to last longer than love marriages. So maybe there's something to be learned from that.
0: Another reason why India is such a fascinating place to travel. Serena Singh, thanks so much for a glimpse into India.
5: Pleasure, Rick. Let's go to India, Rick.
0: Yeah, I know it.
5: If it's your favorite country, you've got to be there.
0: Next, we turn to the Middle East to explore the philosophy of a 13th century poet and mystic known as Rumi. Melika Saval from Turkey joins us in our studio to explain this important figure's growing appeal in the West. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, I want to get a little spiritual in a Muslim kind of way, but not quite. It's a confusing thing. It's Rumi, the whirling dervishes. Most tourists in Turkey see whirling dervishes and they have no clue what they're whirling about. Those whirling are followers of Rumi, a 13th-century mystic poet who wrote in Persian and is considered by some to be the greatest mystic poet of any age. In 25 years, Rumi wrote over 70,000 verses. Some scholars compare him with Dante or even Shakespeare. 2007 was declared the International Rumi Year by UNESCO, and it's all about remembering Rumi on his 800th birthday. While almost unknown in the West 15 years ago today, Rumi's very popular, the music of Rumi was even part of the 2007 Academy Awards festivities. I'm joined today by Melika Saval, who's a tour guide and author from Turkey. She lives in Izmir. Meli, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me here, Rick.
0: Now, that was my Western simplistic description of Rumi. Uh, was it okay in a nutshell, in a simplistic way, or did I miss anything? In a
4: simplistic way, it was... I started hearing the music before you started talking and what that reminded me of years ago back in 1994 when a friend of mine was dying in San Francisco. The best thing I could do was get a music for her and I went to the bookshop, asked what music would be appropriate and they gave me this music and they tried to explain to me that this music is mystical music and I said that's the music that I grew up with the mystic music of Rumi.
0: So when you hear this music, is it an ambience that you're hearing or the words of the poetry?
4: I hear the words, I hear the rhythm, and I hear the joy in the music.
0: Now, you grew up with Rumi as part of your life. Did your parents expose you to Rumi?
4: The exposure is a very subtle thing. You don't know that you're actually learning about the teachings of Rumi. But when they scold you, they will scold you with terms and phrases and poetry of Rumi. When neighbors pulled our ears, if we did something wrong, if we had to be a bitter child, our neighbors would tell us words from Rumi. We did not know what they were quoting. The lullabies were using the words of teachings of Rumi. So, yes, I was exposed, but I was a teenager, a grown-up person when I knew what I had learned, what I lived with, was actually the teachings of Rumi.
0: And by the way, Rumi, is he the same as Mevlana? Because I've heard the word Mevlana.
4: Yes, uh, Mevlana is his title. He's the one who had reached up to perfection. His real name is Jelalitin, And Rumi is the title that defines where he is from. So if you call Jelalitin Mevlana, just Rumi, it's like calling someone from Texas, Texan.
5: Hmm. So if
4: you say Rumi, it's like, hi, Texan. We prefer to call him Jelalitin, Mevlana,
0: Rumi. And he's popular in America now in part because we can say simply Rumi, I guess. He was mm-hmm. born in during the Persian Empire in what is today Afghanistan, and he lived most of his... Uh, Um, He was born in
4: in Bel, which is now in Afghanistan. And then his father moved first to Mecca, then to Baghdad, then to Damascus. Finally, he settled in Anatolia, where there was a Turkish uh, empire. And since Anatolia, where Turkey is now, then was called the land of Rome or Rum, he was given the title Rumi. Huh. meanings of the land of Rumi.
0: Now, you consider yourself a Muslim, and you're also somebody who subscribes to the teaching of Rumi. Yes. Mevlana. I'm um, Mevlavi. Mevlavi. Is, is that a problem for um, mainstream Muslim teachers and so on, that people would have Rumi as one of their um, uh, inspirations?
4: No, absolutely not, because as uh, Rumi, in the simple way, as Rumi says, he has one of his foot on the Quran, and the other foot goes around 72 nations.
0: Okay, so that's the dance. That's the whirling we're talking about.
4: It's the idea, the concept. He is a Muslim. His teachings are the evaluations and interpretations of Islam. He is not a man of sect. he's a man of philosophy. He's a philosopher.
0: It's not really a sect of, of Islam. It's just a philosophical it interpretation of Islam. It is not a of sect Islam.
4: of Islam. It's an interpretation. It's a philosophic interpretation of Islam.
0: Sunnis and Shiites could equally embrace Rumi's teaching. Exactly. Do they? They do. As tourists, we know the whirling dervishes. That's just it. And you got these guys whirling like Teacups around and round and round. The tourists look at that and they just think that's beautiful. And uh, who are these people? But there is a symbolism in this. It's a meditation, isn't it? As they are they praying. And tell me exactly what is the symbolism of the dance?
4: Now, turning does not make the best dancer into a whirling dervish. If you could bring a ballet into the stage and ask them to turn. They will do it best, but they will not be a willing dervish. So the philosophy has to be attached to it. And the philosophy is, as you're turning with one hand, right hand, up into the heaven, left hand facing down to earth, and you're turning, pivoting on one foot, You are taking from God with your right hand. You're giving to people with your left hand. And you're becoming one centrifuge with the rest of the universe. And every individual can do that transition. You don't need a clergy, you don't need an institution, you don't need an organization to be taking from God, giving to people, or vice versa, taking from people, giving to God.
0: A dervish would be a devotee to the Rumi teachings, and he's meditating, and he gets into this beautiful sort of trance where he's symbolically connecting the love of God with people on earth and he's pivoting around and the foot that's not pivoting is is symbolically touching all corners of the planet. Is that right? Seventy-two nations. Seventy-two nations and he goes round and round and he gets into a meditative trance and this is how he would uh, get close to God or what? And you don't
4: necessarily do it physically. If you know these teachings well enough you can mentally whirl as well.
0: Do you mentally whirl? I do. Is it easy?
4: It's very difficult. Why? Because whirling means you have to have joy, a very strong joy. So much, in the words of Rumi, such is my life. Though I came into the world yesterday, today I have built a new whole world to myself. So you have to have this power, this joy that you can create a whole big world out of crumbling world and not every human being can find that joy in themselves to be able to do that and you have to have the creativity and I think we do not use our creativity to its max in the words of Rumi he said we have a soul that creates so many joys If the world crumbles, we can build a new rose garden. And also there's dynamism. Rumi says, forget about the old days. Be the child of the time. Open up a new page. How many of us can easily open these new pages and be the child of the time? So I think it's very difficult to whirl, but you can train yourself. We have the ability.
0: So if Rumi was to be in Turkey today, what would he tell the Turkish people?
4: He will say, don't worry, you will never be overtaken by the fundamentalists. And I think we have that confidence because we follow his teachings and do and follow the steps of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk.
0: So there's no contradiction between the secular modern teachings of Ataturk and the prophet of love teachings?
4: Absolutely of not.
0: There's some symbolism in the costume and the ritual of the the hat and the tombstone and the white dress of the dervishes. Can you explain that?
4: The hat stands for the gravestone, and the dress, white dress, stands for the shroud. So when you whirl and when you reach the ultimate best, you reach God, and that's when you wait with God, and that's the time when you die and go into heaven and you carry your gravestone on your head
0: so this is symbolic of the physical death when you when physical you die death, and it's not yes. in uh, Christian theology i think you die to your material world and Hindus are trying to get beyond materialism and everything is it a symbolic getting behind material cons- beyond it's material getting concerns?
4: beyond materialism so there's yes. the,
0: there's the present day um, elevate your needs and focus on God. And then there is also the promise of a Muslim equivalent of eternal life and salvation.
4: Yes, you get wed wed with your God. Now, these dervishes,
0: when you see somebody whirling in a classic sense, are these priests or monks? Or who are these people who are whirling? No,
4: they are just well-trained people who had devoted their lives to learning how to whirl. And they've studied the theology but you can get a ballerina you can get a man and a woman do whirling and that's what you see in the coffee houses in Istanbul so they're not really sufis they're not rumi followers they're case. just dancers
0: okay so the tourist uh, the hazard for a tourist is they might see uh Uh, Just a dancer, a good dancer. And how would you know whether you're seeing somebody who's really meditating and and, and really in a religious ritual or somebody who's just entertaining the tourists?
4: I think a true Sufi follower of Rumi would not do it publicly, will definitely not do it for money.
0: That reminds me, you were my tour guide with a group in Konya, I believe. You knew somebody who invited us onto his rooftop And we had to go through a a little respective ritual before he would even show us how he meditated through his whirling. Can you explain that?
4: He had kissed the tea glass. He had kissed his shoes. He kissed his belt. So he was giving respect to everything that he was putting on. Everything was about love and respect. Even if objects were not living objects, he was respecting them.
0: And he wouldn't let us just come in and watch him whirl. We had to come in early and go through this sort of... Preparation. Yes. It was a beautiful experience. It was. Rumi has thoughts about organized religion. What are those?
4: Well, he did not like organized religion. He thought organized religion puts the worst restriction to freedom of mind and freedom of speech and freedom of conscience. So he said, unless the seminaries and the minarets perish, no whirling dervish will reach the state he wants to cherish. To emphasize how he did not like organized religion, he also said, only fools praise the mosque while they oppress hearts full of faith.
0: Now, didn't this alienate certain imams that were embracing the uh, church government or the mosque government?
4: It does, but Rumi has an idea about orthodoxy too. And in his words, he said, God's truth is lost on the men of orthodoxy. Mystics refuse to turn life into forgery. God's truth is an ocean and the dogma a ship. Most people don't leave the ship to plunge in that sea. At the threshold of truth, the dogma held them back. At that door, all came in sight, but they could not see.
0: Wow. Now, I feel like one of the major challenges of modern Turkey today, a modern nation, 99% Muslim, what, the size of California, 60 million people, something like... 72 million. 72 million people. It's the struggle against the rise of fundamentalism. And you've got a secular government, you've got a modern sort of urban society that's very strong and growing, and you've got this threat of Islamic fundamentalism that's hard to keep down. Is Rumi something that recognizes this threat, and is Rumi something that more secular Turks would embrace as an alternative to the fundamentalism?
4: For 800 years that Rumi's teachings have been around, there has always been a threat of fundamentalism. And those who follow him, whether they are from Turkish background or Persian background, whether they are Sunnis or Shiites, they have always used Sufi's teachings to honor man. And if you honor man, then anything that would be little, especially fundamentalism that will belittle man, will not survive.
0: Now, this is sort of a a long-term conflict within Christianity also. There were people that wrote who said you could find God within you, and the church government was offended by that, and those books didn't make the editorial cut when they put the Bible together. I suppose that's just a common thread in religions. You've got people that want people to find God through the organized religions, and then prophets like Rumi that say you can find God within you.
4: Yes, he said, in search of God, I went to the temples of the Magians, where they chant for fire, he was not there. I went to Jerusalem to see if he was on the cross, but I saw that he was not there either. Then I went to Mecca, he was not at that sanctuary. Then I gazed into my heart, there he was and nowhere else.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined today by Melika Seval, and Meli is a tour organizer, and she leads tours herself all over Turkey, and she's a writer. She's sharing with us today an insight into Rumi, who is a a very popular philosopher that comes out of the Islamic world, but quite popular these days in the United States. To uh, learn more about Meli's work, you can visit her website at melitour.com, M-E-L-I-T-O-U-R.com. Rumi is not really a prophet, is he, in the sense of uh, Muhammad or something like this? No.
4: The last prophet, we believe, is Muhammad. No one claims to be a prophet after Muhammad. Rumi is a philosopher, and he expressed his teachings in poetry.
0: Okay. And so the the sacred texts of Rumi are his poetic verses?
4: His texts are not sacred, but valuable.
0: Okay. Okay. And what is when you hear the word Sufism or Sufism, what is that?
4: Sufism is the mystic aspect of Islam. There were many different Sufis throughout Asia. Rumi is one of the Sufi interpretations, one of the mystic interpretations of Islam. By that, I mean he defines the place of humanism ecumenism and universalism and the role of man as the reflection of creator. When you say ecumenism, Rumi would
0: not condemn non-Muslims from a spiritual way.
4: He wouldn't, of course. Here's a wonderful poem. He says, with Jesus in the sky, Moses on Mount Sinai, raising my scepter high, I call you out, my God.
0: Say that again. Say that again. That's
4: beautiful. With Jesus in the sky, Moses on Mount Sinai, raising my scepter high, I call you out, my God.
0: Okay. So that is an ecumenical message, and it really is a message of love. Yes. And humanism.
4: Yes, the celebration of ecumenism.
0: What does it have to do with materialism?
4: Rumi does not think of materialism because we are born to this world to lead a good life, to maintain our perfection. Because according to Rumi, based on the teachings of Islam, the human beings are masterpiece of perfect art. So what he teaches is to maintain that perfection. And according to his teachings, the perfection can be maintained, keeping wisdom, feeling, and conscience equally upright. And then you go, and if you lived a good life here, then you wed with God.
0: I can see why it's popular, and it's more popular than ever in the United States. Melle Saval, thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you, Rick. It was my pleasure.
2: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to ABC Radio in Melbourne, Australia for their studio assistance today. Join us next time for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick
0: Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.